You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. In academic philosophy over the last century or so, the various thinkers in French and German and Slovenian traditions, even those who do not live in Europe, have fallen under the geographic label continental, while those influenced by English-speaking philosophy have taken on the name analytic. In my own theological education 20 years ago, German and French philosophy were the coin of the realm, and the same held when I moved to Georgia and started graduate studies in literature. But Dr. Oliver Crisp wants to invite people like me and like you to reconsider the value of analytic thought for Christian theology. His new book, Analyzing Doctrine, brings the serious and deliberate investigations of analytic philosophy to bear on core Christian doctrines to raise questions that we could all benefit from posing. And Christian Humanist Profiles is happy to welcome him to the show. Thank you for coming on board, Oliver. Thank you for having me. It's a delight to be here. In the book's introduction, you let readers know that you're going to be doing theology in a strong sense, not religious studies or history of ideas when you write. And I'm quoting, theology is able to speak truthfully about the divine, end quote. Uh, since the passages, you know, you're, since in these passages, pardon me, you're not merely reciting doctrines, but doing constructive theology, and you can tell our listeners what that distinction means in a moment, why is that strong claim to truth important in this book's work? Well, I mean, I think that um, traditionally theology has been thought of as an enterprise that is both truth-apt and truth-aimed. In other words, by truth-apt, I mean it's the kind of enterprise that is able to get at the truth of the matter, so it's, it's kind of calibrated towards the truth. And it's aimed towards the truth. In other words, we're trying to figure out, to the extent that we are able to as limited human beings, certain things about um, who God is and his relation to creation and those sorts of things. So the way that I am thinking of uh, theology as, a, as an intellectual enterprise in this book and in my work more generally, and I think this is true of a lot of analytic theology, um, is as an enterprise that is truth-apt and truth-aimed. In other words, it's calibrated towards truth and it's aimed at truth. And that's important because it seems to me that we want to get at, we want to understand something of who God is and his purposes in creation and reconciliation. If, if theology is unable to do that, if it's um, not either truth-apt or truth-aimed, then it seems we, um, we should probably pack our bags up and go do something more interesting or more useful uh, with, our, with our time. Now, you asked me about um, what the difference between uh, reciting doctrines and doing constructive theology is. I think that doctrines are um, Christian teachings held by particular communities of faith. Uh, and I think doing constructive theology is is a way of trying to form new arguments and, and, and on the basis of new reflections on uh, these traditional teachings of the Christian faith. So constructive theology today involves trying to figure out ways of restating um, the kind of traditional doctrine that the church has always taught. Very good. And when you describe it that way, I mean, it reminds me of uh, another book that I, I value greatly. Uh, and it, it's, it's a book that, you know, your project shares a certain humility with and a certain rigor with. And I'm curious, I mean, uh, to what extent are you familiar with and to what extent are you in conversation with George Lindbeck's book, The Nature of Doctrine? Well, I'm flattered that you would come 
compare my book to George Lindbeck's book. Um, I, I, that's a terrific book in my view. And uh, I remember reading it uh, as a graduate student some years ago and uh, being sort of electrified by it in many respects. I think it's terrific. I think it's, it's short and pithy and he really does uh, get at some really important issues. Um, in my own work um, uh, in the past, I have said that, you know, you could do the sort of thing that I'm doing here in analytic theology uh, with a view to doing it in the tradition that Lindbeck stands in, the so-called Yale School of post-liberalism. Um, so you could you could do um, analytic theology in a way that was sympathetic to kind of Lindbeck's um, sensibilities and aims, I suppose. I'm not sure that I'm doing it in that way. And the reason why I think I'm doing something slightly different is that I, I take it that the sort of project that Lindbeck's involved in is, is a project trying to set up what he calls the grammar of theology. In other words, if, we, if we're going to speak meaningfully uh, as theologians about um, matters theological, then what we should be trying to do is, is understanding and producing kind of coherent language with which we can make sense of the claims that we, we want to state regarding God and his purposes in creation and redemption. Um, now, while I think that's a valuable thing to do, I think that we have to go a step further than that. I think that having the correct grammar, as it were, or the right sort of phraseology or the right vocabulary um, is indeed important, but it's not enough. We need, in, in addition to that, to be engaged in this um, tr- this, this truth out to truth aimed enterprise. Now, I'm not saying for one minute that George Limbeck's um, not interested in the truth question, but my point is that um, those who have taken up this kind of post-liberal way of thinking about the, the theological task tend to see the grammar of theology and truth claims as two distinct sort of things. They may be related, but they're distinct. And I want to say, Though they may um, be distinct, we have to relate them. We can't do one independent of the other. That distinction makes good sense. And early in the book's first numbered chapter, uh, you lay out a shared task for systematic theology in particular, namely, quote, explicating the conceptual content of Christian tradition, end quote. So again, so that we can give our listeners a, a framework for this book, Uh, How does systematic theology differ from the work of homiletics or catechism or SBL-style biblical studies? Yeah, that's good. So, I mean, there's going to be some overlap between those different things. Um, I think that uh, trying to explicate Christian doctrine is largely a task uh, that that is concerned with trying to figure out and trying to state or restate um, the kind of conceptual core and the conceptual content of Christian beliefs. You know, we believe in dot, dot, dot. And then um, you, you say, well, when we say we believe in God, we, we mean this by God. When we say we believe in Christ, we mean this by Christ and so on and so forth. So if we were to take something like the creeds, the great creeds of the Christian faith, like the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, and the doctrines that the creed states with respect to God and his purposes, then I suppose a theologian, one task of a theologian anyway, is to try and take that sort of framework and um, make sense of the claims that are being stated in the creed. Um, How is that different from something like homiletics? Well, I take it that homiletics is... um, a kind of application of some of that to um, the Christian life in particular uh, and to trying to help um, people in the pews to grasp and to um, make real, as it were, make concrete the kinds of doctrine that we have expressed for us in the creeds and in Scripture. 
Um, so I'm, I don't think they're entirely different tasks, but I think that someone doing homiletics is um, engaged in something that's related to what we're doing with Christian doctrine, but distinct from what we're doing with Christian doctrine. And it's a, it's a very important task, in my view, um, just as much as the, the person who's, who's trying to figure out Christian doctrine. In, in terms of what someone doing um, biblical studies might be interested in, so someone in the SBL world, as you put it, it rather depends on the person doing biblical studies, I suppose. I mean, those people who uh, see biblical studies as largely um, sort of ancient Near Eastern history and linguistics and sort of the kind of techie end of uh, biblical studies might find the sort of thing that I'm talking about not terribly interesting because I think it's a very different sort of task. But there are many people in biblical studies for whom the theological dimension to what the Bible says is of vital importance. And those people who are doing more theologically informed biblical studies um, or who are interested in the theological content of the biblical texts, those are the sorts of people who um, I think theologians of all stripes, including analytic theologians, should be in close conversation with since we're both really coming at the same sorts of issues but from slightly different angles. Very good. I want to address a, a concern that, you know, your book uh, very commendably addresses early on, and that is, you know, one of the uh, figures that people tend to think of when they think of analytic philosophy is Bertrand Russell, uh, who is also, you know, one of uh, recent history's more famous atheist writers. Uh, and, you know, some of your readers might somehow suspect that, you know, analytic theology you know, has in its blueprint, if you will, a tendency towards corrosive or even destructive projects when it comes to Christianity. Uh, so, you know, how do you address that that concern with, you know, some of the, the more famous atheist roots of analytic philosophy? Well, I think um, analytic philosophy is a, is a kind of tradition, um, a philosophical tradition like the hermeneutical or continental tradition. And um, as with any such tradition, there are thinkers of various different points of view represented within its bounds. Um, and certainly you could point to someone like Bertrand Russell as a particularly well-known exponent of a kind of Anglo-American analytic tradition in the first half of the 20th century. And uh, one of the founding fathers of analytic philosophy, as we uh, understand it uh, today, and there would be a lot of truth in that. But he's only one person, and um, I think more recent analytic philosophy has been interested in projects rather different from Bertrand Russell to some extent, or even if they have been interested in, in things that Bertrand Russell was interested in, and not necessarily coming from the same kind of atheistic bias. So I don't think that analytic philosophy is inherently atheistic or anti-religious or anything like that, um, any more than I think that's true of people doing hermeneutical and continental philosophy. And of course, you can find eminent continental thinkers who are um, atheist in their um, worldview as well. So, I mean, I don't uh, think... Friedrich Nietzsche comes to mind immediately. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, so I don't think there's anything peculiar about uh, anal the analytic tradition in that respect. And I do think there are a number of people who've worked in the analytic tradition who've been notable Christians or notable theists, and their work is particularly fruitful and helpful, um, I think, for those who are doing analytic theology. Well, very good. I want to turn to the... Uh... The theological project of this volume in particular, now that we've laid some groundwork, uh, you undertake the project of disti uh, distinguishing your chastened, thea chastened pardon me, theism 
from classical theism, broadly speaking, and Thomist theism more specifically. And I get the sense that, you know, your aim is, you know, and again, I think this is where I, I started to trace the connections to Lindbeck. You seem to have ecumenical concerns in mind. So, I mean, in your mind, where would you rank ecumenical possibilities among the goals of your theology or of analytic theology more broadly? Well, certainly my own um, theological sensibilities are ecumenical, and I've um, tried hard to uh, produce work that that appeals to as broad a range of different theologians from different traditions as possible. Though I, I consciously state up front that I come from the Reformed tradition myself. I'm hoping that, that um, as a Reformed theologian, the work that I do may make a contribution to the, to the wider theological discussion across the different churches. Um, so, uh, in, in short, the ecumenical dimension is very important to me in my work, and I think it's an important um, component of theology today, that we do um, our work in conversation with one another across the boundaries of the different streams of Christianity that exist. I, I think the kind of the idea that we might um, occupy some little silo that doesn't really pay attention to anything that's going on in other uh, streams of Christianity is not a sustainable position these days. Um, in terms of how that reflects analytic theology, in fact, I think from its inception, analytic theology has been inherently ecumenical. Uh, partly because of the uh, the approach doesn't really commit you to very much by way of substantive philosophical or theological claims. It's a fairly thin method. Uh, and as a consequence, at least in part as a consequence of that, you find that there are people doing analytic theology from many of the major uh, theological streams. We have people who are Anglican, who are Presbyterian, who are Baptist, people who are Roman Catholic, people who are Orthodox, um, so, and people who are Lutheran. So you can find, you can find most, um, Christian streams of the Christian, uh, faith, um, represented in, uh, analytic theology one way or another. And I think this is one of the great strengths of analytic theology is that it's a way of approaching the theological task that is able to speak across confessional boundaries and provide a kind of space in which theologians can come together and do serious theological work together. Very good. Well, let's turn back to simplicity. When you write about divine simplicity, uh, you say that simplicity does not describe God directly as an insurance adjuster. An insurance adjuster might describe the damage done in a car wreck, uh, but rather that simplicity stands as a model of sorts. So in this book and in your work more broadly, what distinguishes a doctrine or a dogma from a model? Um, well, let me take the last bit of that first. So doctrines and dogmas and models. I've already said that I think doctrines are Christian teachings that are held by particular communities in particular uh, times and places. So that's what a doctrine is, on my way of thinking. A dogma is a, is a slightly different thing. Uh, it's a, I, on my way of thinking, a dogma is a, a doctrine that's got a particular kind of ecclesiastical form or definition. So it's got a more formal standing one that's been defined by a church or defined by a council or something like that. So something um, in a written catechism or in a Westminster right. Confession or something like that. Yes, and I'm particularly thinking of something like the Trinity. Now, I think that the Trinity looks to me like a paradigm of a dogma because we have in the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed an account of what the Trinity is. This is what Christians ought to believe, that there's one God who subsists in three persons. 
Now, that looks to me like it's the kind of thing that all Christians ought to believe. So it's a dogma in that sense. It's got this formal definition, plays this formal role in Christian theology in a way that, let's say, a particular view of the atonement does not. There's no canonical definition of how we should think about the atonement. And that's precisely why we've got so many different views on how we should think about the atonement um, up to the present time. So that's how I would distinguish um, a dogma and uh, a doctrine. And you asked about something else? Uh, yeah, I mean, the uh, the distinction between uh, theologies that describe God directly versus model versions oh, yeah. of, of theology. Right, so uh, models, um, uh, here I'm thinking of models along the lines of, that you find models deployed in sort of the natural sciences. So it's a kind of simplified description of more complex data. And the example that I often give is, example of a picture of an atom in a physics textbook. So, you know, you have this picture of an atom in a physics textbook. Obviously, an atom doesn't look like the picture in the textbook. It's a simplified description of something more complex. No, that's actually seen an atom, but this is a kind of representation of it that helps us to grasp something of the conceptual content of what an atom is. And in a similar way, I'm suggesting, and I think a lot of analytic theologians are interested in suggesting, that um, when we try and give some account of a particular doctrine, um, one one very helpful way of doing that is to provide a kind of model. Try try to sort of say, well, look, um, there are these complex. There's this complex of claims being made here on, say, something like the Trinity. It's difficult to know how to make sense of these things. Maybe the best way to um, approach it is to try and provide a model, a simplified description of this complex data that approximates to the truth of the matter, that helps us get some kind of conceptual grip on it, even if we can't fully describe it because it's a mystery beyond the ken of any human being. And that's interesting. I mean, you know, when we talk about simplicity, uh, you know, I, I can definitely see that we don't necessarily want to say that, I, you know, I have looked at God and God is not divided, but rather we want to say that um, we want to make negative claims rather than positive claims there. And yet, your theology of divine simplicity pulls up far short of Thomas Aquinas's pure act without potential version of divine simplicity. So, what is the content? How far does it stretch when you do your theology of divine simplicity? And what reasons do you give readers for favoring a more parsimonious doctrine of simplicity rather than Thomas's bolder teaching? So... Um the account that I give is, is as I've just said, a model. It's, a, it's a, an approximation to the truth of the matter. So I don't say, well, what I'm saying about divine simplicity is the truth, plain and simple. What I say is, here's a way of thinking about divine simplicity that may have theological utility. It approximates the truth of the matter. Maybe that the truth of the matter is, is more complex than um, uh, I'm uh, articulating it in the model. And there may be good reasons for not wishing to get bogged down into the in the complexity of, of going further than the model that I articulate, partly because it may be that we can't either get a clear grip on the, the more complex material, or partly it might be because um, there are significant um, conceptual difficulties with the more complex doctrine. There has been a lot of uh, a lot of ink spilt in the last fifteen to twenty years on the doctrine of divine simplicity and a lot of objections raised to various versions of the doctrine. And um, one thought I had was, in providing a model like this, we might elide or sidestep some of those objections by saying, well, if we have a, a, a kind of stripped-down version of simplicity that may not be the truth, all things considered, but may approximate to it, this may avoid certain sorts of 
objectionable conversations that have sort of run into the sand perhaps in, in recent decades. Um, so I don't necessarily think that the model that I have provided is something that the Thomists should be um, up in arms about because I'm not claiming that it's the truth of the matter. If the Thomists are saying that the doctrine that Thomas articulates is the truth of the matter, then um, maybe that is right. But uh, but there may be good uh, pragmatic reasons why we want to adopt something slightly less stringent than Thomas's account for the purposes of doing our theology today. And the account that I'm articulating is one where um, God is simple in the sense that maybe a subatomic particle is simple. It has it has distinct properties, but it's not something that can be broken down into more simple component parts or the way in which a, a traditional account of a, the soul is, is thought to be um, simple. The soul can't be chopped up into smaller bits, but it nevertheless has distinct mental content, distinct properties, and so on. And so I'm, on the view of simplicity I'm articulating, we can then think of God as... as um, having something like distinct properties, though he's not not a, an entity that can be divided into more simple components. And I, I realize I've already started with the unwelcome comparisons here, but what what your what our conversation right now is reminding me of is some of the work that Immanuel Kant does in the Critique of Pure Reason, where you know the simplicity of the soul is not necessarily something that is inherent in the soul itself, but it's something necessary to have. Uh, rational discourse about the soul to make uh, statements about the soul that are not nonsense. Um, for our listeners, I mean, to what extent, you know, does your project share that project with Kant's project, and to what extent does it differ? Well, I, I'm not. I'm not suggesting that the project that I'm um, involved with is simply wanting to. Um, given account of Christian doctrine and particularly difficult, in some cases, particularly difficult doctrines like the Trinity and simplicity and so on, that I hope helps us to go about doing our theology in a way that's useful and helpful to the churches and is, enables us to provide a coherent account of the Christian faith. Um, that's really all that I'm trying to do. Um, is that a Kantian project? Well, I don't think it's a Kantian project in as much as Kant's um, um, project is, is wedded to a, a kind of vast array of other sorts of doctrines that I'm not necessarily committed to. Um, but I certainly do think that that one helpful way of thinking about the divine unity is uh, one helpful way that might um, help us in the current cl- intellectual climate on this doctrine is one that provides us with a, a model rather than um, perhaps commits one to this very strong account of divine simplicity that has very uh, a number of very well-known objections to it. All right, that's fair enough, that's fair enough. I want to return to that notion of models because when you discuss models of Trinity, uh, I think that you give some very helpful comparisons to models in physics. And I'm interested in the history of change within those models because the models we can narrate a, a, well, I mean, a history of the way that, you know, today's models differ from models 150 years ago, from 300 years ago, from 800 years ago. Now, God has not changed much in the last 800 years, I don't think. Atoms have not changed much in the last 800 years, I don't think. And yet the models have changed pretty substantially. So what, how do you distinguish, I'll put it this way, between changes in those models that are helpful and changes in those models that are not helpful 
uh, you know, what are the criteria for the good good changes and the bad changes? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think when it comes to, to models in um, science, presumably there, there are um, criteria that you want to apply, like is the new model uh, a simpler, um, more elegant explanation of the same data? Um, does this new model explain certain things that the old model was finding it difficult to explain um so it's is it is its explanatory power greater than the old model um is it able to account for certain sorts of data that the old model found anomalous those sorts of things right um and to some extent i think those those sorts of concerns can be carried over into the theological project i mean there is um of course the theological principle of Occam's razor, where you don't want to multiply entities beyond necessity. So if we've got two explanations of the same data, there might be a reason for thinking that we apply Occam's razor and, and say, well, is this account of the Trinity a simpler, elegant, um, more beautiful explanation than the other one? I'm not saying that's the only criteria, and that's the, not the only thing that we should apply with respect to a model, but it's a criteria that might be an appropriate one to think about. Um, similarly, we might want to ask, does this new model of whatever doctrine it is um, provide uh, have greater explanatory power, provide a better account of a greater range of data and so on? And here the data that we're concerned with would be, I suppose, principally what we find in the biblical material and in subsequent Christian tradition, um, where we're thinking of the biblical materials providing us the sort of raw data from divine revelation and subsequent Christian tradition is providing us with theological reflection upon that data. So when looking at that um, uh, that data as a whole, does this new account um, give us reason to think it's, it's got greater explanatory value, all things considered, than the previous models did? So th- those are some criteria that one might want to apply. And I certainly think that there's... Uh, there's evidence that, 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 that there are such models in the offing, even in recent times. Take the doctrine of Trinity once again. Um, recent analytic work on the Trinity has yielded a new model of the Trinity, the Constitution account of the Trinity, which is itself quite exciting. And, I mean, often one thinks that um, good evidence of a vibrant research program, one that's, that's doing good work, is one that's producing new models for um, difficult sorts of problems. And if the Trinity might be thought of in some context as a difficult kind of theological problem, providing a new model that helps us understand the Trinity is surely a helpful and good thing. Very good. I want to turn from uh, history to atemporality, kind of the opposite of history, because atemporality was decidedly one of the hobgoblins of systematic minds that my biblical studies professors and others taught me to hold at least in some suspicion, even if not in some kind of contempt. But you make the case that because biblical texts do leave room for atemporality, we should attend to other reasons besides you know, direct propositions in the biblical revelation to favor atemporality over other models. So what kinds of reasons do we have to favor atemporality, especially in the face of biblical texts in which God becomes angry when God wasn't angry before, when God changes God's mind, when God otherwise seems to alter? Uh, You know, what are the benefits of atemporality in the face of those texts, and how does you know, a, a, an ecumenical-minded theology of atemporality 
deal with those texts? Well, I think the first thing I'd say is that when coming to the biblical texts on this particular matter and, and other similar sorts of matters with divine attributes, um, there's no sort of philosophy-free way of dealing with these issues. Um, so there are those people who come to these texts and say, well, look, God changes his mind in the Noahic flood. He repents of having created human beings, and then he wipes them out apart from Noah and his family. Um, there are many other cases in Scripture where God seems to change his mind, where the prophets ascribe changes of mind to God right. and so on. And my test case uh, tends to be Exodus 3, where God gives Moses a command, Moses waffles, and then God becomes angry. His nose burns bright in the Hebrew. Right. So, exactly. And th so there's all these sorts of things that one can point to in the biblical text. Um, that's Those are data points, as it were. What one does with them, then, is the important question. Now, my view is that um, the biblical material is metaphysically underdetermined on these questions. That is to say, it's consistent with more than one kind of philosophical just-so story of how to make sense of these texts. Now, one of those uh, metaphysical just-so stories is the one that says, we take the, what the text says at face value, and God really does change his mind. God does. God is capable of that significant kind of change. Um, in, and we see this repeated time and time again in Scripture. But let's be clear, that's not a philosophy-free way of reading the texts. That's making certain hermeneutical judgments in approaching the text and making certain philosophical decisions about how to treat what the text says about who God is. So um, just in the same way, um, but with different philosophical assumptions, the person who thinks that God is atemporal is coming to the same text and interpreting it in a different way and saying, well, these texts that suggest that God changes um, are to be understood metaphorically rather than literally, whereas other texts that seem to reflect that God is constant should be should be treated as somehow more fun fundamental. So there's two sorts of data in Scripture, it seems to me. There's the data that says God doesn't change. There's, uh, there's the data that says God does change, and much depends on which you privilege over the other, which you use to interpret the other texts. So those who think that God changes his mind are going to privilege the, the texts that seem to suggest that over the texts that suggest that God doesn't change, and vice versa for the person who thinks that God is outside of time. So in my view, um, much depends on the, the philosophical assumptions one brings to these texts, and you have to, in a sense, pay your money and take your choice. Now, for someone like me, um, some of those philosophical assumptions include a kind of Anselmian perfect being theology. So this is the idea, going back to Anselm of Canterbury, one of the great medieval theologians, that God is the greatest conceivable being. He's a perfect being. So that if he's a perfect being, God has all great making qualities um, that would that would distinguish him as a, as a great making as a as a great being as the, as a maximally great being. And you can find this described in Anselm's uh, Monologian and Proslogian in particular, two two great works of medieval theology. Um, so I, I think that many people who are analytic theologians, not everybody, but many people who are analytic theologians are also enamored of a kind of perfect being theology approach to thinking about the doctrine of God, and they bring that to the table when they think about these particular biblical passages that describe God changing his mind. Now, as I say, not every analytic theologian takes that view. You can find analytic theologians who think God changes his mind and is in time. There's plenty of people who think that as well. But those who I sympathize with are those who would come to the text of this sort of philosophical framework and um, use that as a way of trying to help them make sense of the texts. My suggestion is that we're all doing that, though, because the texts are metaphysically underdetermined. It just depends on the metaphysical framework that you're utilizing. 
that makes good sense. And really, I mean, the the most convincing case for a, a, an immutable, I, I won't necessarily go as far as a temporal deity that I've encountered, is when I've taught uh, Plato's dialogue, The Republic, and when he's making the case for, you know, cutting the passages out of, you know, Hesiod and Homer, in which the gods transform, you know, the, the case that Plato's Socrates makes is that you would either have to say that God was better after transforming or better before transforming, which right. would mean either that God wasn't as good as possible before or God isn't as good as possible now. And, you know, I, I, that, that logic is pretty compelling, I think. Yeah, that's exactly it. Very good. Well, your chapter on uh, incarnation anyway models fascinated me. I'd, I'd never encountered that <laughs> phrase. But I do remember yeah. learning in a church history class that some of the uh, patristic writers speculated about incarnation in a hypothetical, unfallen world. Your mm. investigation goes further, you know, into a conversation about, quote, the eternal purposes of God in creation, end quote. So mm. talk to our listeners about divine purposes uh, and how they have to do with, you know, the doctrine of incarnation. Yeah, well... And I suppose many Christians, when thinking about the Incarnation, tend to think that the Incarnation is something like God's rescue plan. You know, human beings have fouled up, they're they're sinful, as a consequence of that, God um, becomes incarnate in order to reconcile us to God's self and save us. Now, I'm not not denying that, of course that's true, Um, but the question is whether that's the only reason for the Incarnation, uh, and whether there would have been an incarnation independent of any human sin and foul up that needed to needed God to put in place a rescue plan. Now there are going to be those Christian theologians who say yes, this is the really the principal reason why there is an incarnation is is for this rescue plan. And had human beings um, not sinned, there'd be no reason for God to become incarnate. Um, that's a view that I've stepped away from, and uh, I'm now much more sympathetic to uh, the stronger claim that the Incarnation is such a momentous thing, such an enormous uh, undertaking on God's part, that it seems strange to think that he would only undertake it in order to bring about salvation for fallen human beings. Are there reasons for thinking that this might have been something that God would put in put in play even if human beings had not sinned. What would be such a thing? And in keeping with a number of other theologians, I thought that there is indeed a reason for God doing this. And the reason is this, that if in the purposes of God, God intends to create human beings in order that ultimately we may be able to participate in the divine life and enjoy his fellowship, um, then it may be the case that in order to bring that about, uh, a most fitting way to do that would be to to provide a kind of hub between divinity and humanity in order that we can interface through this hub um, with the divine because human beings on their own and independent of God are metaphysically incapable of bootstrapping themselves into a relationship with God. So God graciously comes to us, provides this hub, as it were, this interface between divinity and humanity in the person of Christ, and as a consequence of that, we're able to be united to Christ and through Christ to be able to participate in the divine life. So it seems to me that there are good Christological reasons, as it were, good reasons written into um, this, the, the purposes of God in creation, if God's purpose is for us to participate in the divine life, that 
God would bring about an incarnation even if there were no fall into human sin. And that's interesting. I, you know, the the question that this raised for me uh, that I never even, you know, it never even occurred to me to pose the question is uh, just how powerful is human sin? And then I think that the case for incarnation anyway uh, would indicate that, you know, in a good Augustinian tradition that, you know, sin does not have any power of its own, but it is a, uh, it is privative. Uh, so, I mean, you know, there, there's not a sense that it would necessitate divine action, but rather it would, you know, alter the frame in which divine action occurs. Does that, does that distinction make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and of course, we do live in a world in which sin has occurred and God does have to bring about the incarnation in order to reconcile human beings to God's self. So there is that in play. That's definitely the case. But I think there's something more fundamental. And the more fundamental thing is that the incarnation would be necessary uh, independent of human sin in order for us to be able to interface with God and participate in the divine life. Well, very good. We're not going to discuss every chapter of this book. I do want our listeners to buy it and read it after all. Uh, but I do want you to talk a little bit about the virgin birth. I, I thought this chapter yeah. was interesting because you talk about the virgin birth as not a necessary element of incarnation, but a fitting element of incarnation. Uh, what's yeah. important about that distinction? Well, I think um, this kind of fittingness um, criterion goes way back into theology of the past. I mean, people like Anselm use it quite frequently. Uh, certain actions that God does are, are more fitting than, than other sorts of actions. And uh, the idea is is to safeguard against uh, too strong a theological claim about a particular thing, in this case, in, about the, the manner in which the incarnation takes place. Um, so my claim is that it's not that God has to bring about the incarnation through a virgin birth. He could have done it some other way. Uh, but rather that this seemed to be the most fitting, or this is at least a fitting way of bringing it about, and uh, what we find in two of the four canonical Gospels is reports that that's the way that God did bring it about. Now, of course, there's a, there's a long-standing debate about the, um, the virginal conception of Christ and the virgin birth and a number of people who have uh, mounted documents against the veracity of the, the virgin birth, and indeed many systematic theologians today who either think it's not important or don't think it's true that there was a virgin birth and that we don't need the virgin birth for an incarnation anyway. Um, my response to that is to say, of course, we don't, don't need a virgin birth for there to be an incarnation. God could have brought an incarnation uh, independent of a virgin birth. He could have brought about an incarnation through the normal um, gestation of a, a, um, a human baby in the womb um, through procreative processes, had he wished to do so. Nevertheless, it is fitting that um, the incarnation comes about through the virginal conception and virgin birth of Christ, and it's fitting because it's a way of signaling something special about the birth of Christ. And we see this elsewhere in Scripture. We see this elsewhere in the Gospel stories with the, uh, with the special birth of uh, John the Baptist. Um, but we see it also in the Old Testament. So there's ways in which God's purposes are signaled by special births, and it's not then that surprising that we see this in the case of Christ as well. Good, good. You dedicate a chapter, and, and perhaps two chapters if we count the one on theosis, to the doctrines concerning Christ's person and natures, and your analytic work leans towards the orthodox doctrines that Christ is one person with two natures, 
uh, even in the face of modern psychological objections to that formulation. So what is the psychological objection to two natures, and what is at stake in maintaining that Christ nonetheless is two natures? Well, I suppose there are a number of different objections to the claim that Christ uh, subsists in two natures. Um, not all of them psychological. There are theological objections to it as well, that it seems deeply implausible to think you can have one person, one unified person who has two natures, or that it's, it's a confusion to think of these things, or even that it's incoherent to think of these things, and various sorts of claims of that sort have been put forward over the years. Um, some people worry that uh, if you have a two natures doctrine, then you end up with a kind of schizophrenic Christ, one who is uh, one time human, one time divine. Which of the two things is he? Can it be both at the same time? Those sorts of things. Um, my task, in keeping with a, a lot of other people who, in recent times in analytic theology, who have sought to do something similar, is a largely defensive task on, on this point. Defensive in the sense, not defensive in, the, in, a, in a bad sense, in a pejorative sense of being on the defensive, but defensive in the sense of trying to provide reasons for thinking that there's nothing inconsistent in holding that um, Christ is one person subsisting in two natures. And this traditional doctrine that goes way back to the Council of Chalcedon in AD 451, and has been uh, held by Christians ever since, is a perfectly respectable doctrine um, with certain sorts of caveats in place. And so um, the chapter in the book is largely about trying to defend that traditional account against the claim that Christ can't have two wills. He can't have a human and a divine will because they need to have um, something uh, you know that, that wouldn't make sense. Um, and my claim is it does make sense to think that Christ has two wills, and this is part and parcel of the traditional doctrine that that has been passed down through the generations. And uh, we can have some account according to which Christ is able to will according to his divine nature, according to his divinity, and, and able to will according to his human nature, and where the two wills of Christ don't come into conflict. And really, in many ways, what I'm trying to do is, is um, take up and extend a fairly traditional way of thinking about this. The, the doctrine is called diothelitism, meaning two wills, as opposed to monothelitism, meaning one will. Yeah, and then again, that, that brings me back to my uh, seminary church history classes, uh, which is kind of fun because you know, that's now 20 years in the past. Uh, but I want to hear you expand on the book's final paragraph where you name the real work that analytic theology does. And I'll go ahead and quote you again, quote, Yet analytic theology is particularly well suited to the work of world building, end quote. Yeah. Talk for a moment in terms of gifts. I mean, what gift does an analytic theology offer to Christian intellectuals, and how should we receive that gift if we're going to receive it well? Yeah, that's a good question as well. Um, I, I mean, I, I think that analytic theology is suited to certain tasks and perhaps not other tasks. It's not good for everything. I'm not saying it's a panacea. But when you're doing the work of systematic theology and you're trying to give a systematic account of Christian doctrine, a coherent account of Christian doctrine, which of course has a, has a place in the life of the church. It's not the be-all and end-all, but it's important to have coherent and consistent beliefs, and it's important to have some sense of what it is that we do believe to pass on the faith and to, to understand the faith that we hold. It seems to me, in, for that reason, that analytic theology may have a place that, that could make it a useful tool in the theologian's toolbox. Because um, analytic theology 
um, as it's currently practiced, is about, as I say in the book, world building. Now, by world building, I mean it's able to build a kind of conceptual picture or conceptual structure, like someone who's writing a novel builds uh, a conceptual structural picture of an imaginary world that you then in, you then enter and inhabit, like in Lord of the Rings, for example. Um, so in a similar way, the, the analytic theologian, as systematic theologians have traditionally done, is trying to provide a co coherent world, conceptual world that you can enter and inhabit that will help us to have a better sense of the shape uh, and the form and the landscape of uh, Christian doctrine. Um, now, that's not the only way that one could approach uh, worldview or world building in in uh, in terms of doctrinal construction. But I do think that analytic theology is particularly well suited to it because it privileges the kinds of structures that you need to do that kind of conceptual world ta world building task, such as um, you know, trying to get really clear the logical form of particular arguments and trying to make, place them in, uh, in, uh, in ways that make sense alongside other sorts of doctrines, um, so that you've got a, an overall coherent picture of what it is that you're saying. Um, and the analytic project tends to, uh, to be a project that's, at least in some cases, about a kind of systematic, uh, world building approach to these things and we can we, we can see this in in work since the 1970s which which is uh, in in certain sections of the analytic philosophical world is about systematic metaphysics where you're trying to give a systematic account of um, the metaphysical structures that underpin uh, the world so to speak uh, in a similar way here the analytic theologian Quay systematic theologian is trying to give um, a, a kind of a systematic account of the structures that underpin Christian doctrine, and in that sense is uh, an important approach to world building for um, Christian theolo theology. And I appreciate that humility with the, with which you approach the task, because I, I I often have to remind myself and and remind friends of mine who are theologically educated to remember the place that theology should take alongside. Christian worship and alongside Christian prayer, uh, yeah. and I think that you know when, when you uh, talk about you know theology as well suited to world building, uh, you know I, that that puts it in a place where it is working alongside prayer and worship uh, in a way that doesn't try to dominate them, but but is there to help them. Does that make some sense? Absolutely, and that's exactly how I think of it. I think it is one. One task, uh, but not the only task, and not necessarily the only important task either. Um, these other tasks are just as important, uh, and I think you know traditionally Christian theologians have thought these other tasks are terribly important as well. Um, so, absolutely right. I think we have to have a right sense of proportion about these things. Good, good. Uh, sometimes I like to to finish an, an interview with the book's opening sentence, and this is definitely one of those books that lends itself to that. The opening sentence reads thus, quote, writing systematic theology is hard, end quote. Well, Dr. Crisp, reading it is no picnic either. And I'm reminded <laughs> of the first time that I read Kant's Critique of Pure Reason, and I've read it again since, so I do return to it, even though I don't find it pleasant always. I remember about 500 pages in thinking, what harm would come to anyone, Kant, if someone thought of the soul as a unity in itself rather than as a psychological amphiboly, a limit that separates rational thought from irrational speculation, 
Would anyone really <laughs> suffer anything really bad from such an unguarded transgression of critical limits? And likewise, sometimes in this book, it was not a thousand pages like Kant, but nonetheless, I couldn't help thinking, who would suffer if someone thought that in the resurrection, Jesus' body went to some place in real space? What's the harm? So as we wrap things up, talk to our listeners for a moment about what makes this hard work worthwhile. I have a hunch it is. I want to hear you say why it is. Yeah, good. Thank you. I, I mean, I think that if you think Christian doctrine is truth apt and truth aimed because you think that we really do, we, we really are in contact with a God and a God who creates and sustains this world and, and seeks to bring us back into reconciliation with himself and all that we may participate in his life, in the divine life. If you think those things are true, then I suppose you'd have a pretty good reason for wanting to figure out, to the extent that we can figure out, what doctrine is is um, right and and appropriate for helping us prosecute the task of getting to know and understand that that God to the extent that we're able to do so. So, to my way of thinking, if you're committed to those sorts of claims, then you ought to be concerned about really important matters of Christian doctrine that should concern you, much as it would concern you if you thought that a particular political view was the right view and, and that holding that particular political view could really make a significant difference to society. Then trying to get your politics right would be terribly important to you. Or the same would be true in ethics if you held a particular ethical view and you thought getting that right could make an enormous practical difference to society, then you'd be motivated to uh, prosecute a particular ethical task. So in a similar way, it seems to me, if we have certain sorts of theological beliefs, Christian theological beliefs, about who God is, his purposes in creation, what he wants of us, what he seeks for us, then trying to understand those divine purposes seems to me to be of paramount importance. So therefore, um, it seems to me that Christian theology, um, for those who take that matter seriously, should be a matter of paramount importance as well. And that's really what I'm about in this book. I don't claim to have all the answers, but I claim to be engaged in that kind of task, as I think many other theologians are today. And that, it seems to me, is a terribly important task. Excellent, excellent. Well, Oliver, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. What about analytic theology, Christian doctrine, or anything else do you want our listeners thinking about as we head towards the door? I think I want um, to direct uh, the attention of, uh, of the listeners to this Anselmian project that I've been talking about, this notion that Christian theology is really about faith-seeking understanding, that we stand within the faith, we have received the faith, and really the theologian is about trying to take the faith that we hold and believe and try to understand and unpack that conceptually speaking to some extent. Um, if we think of theology as a faith-seeking understanding task, and I hope that we'll both have this truth-up, truth-aimed element to what we're trying to do, but also prosecute it in a, a, a sort of a sense of intellectual humility, recognizing the fact that our own theological positions may be fallible and fragile things, we may get things wrong, but that we're seekers of truth and seekers of, uh, of understanding more of this faith that has been given to us. Uh, this 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 wonderful faith in, in the great things of the gospel. Oliver Crisp, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you very much. 
Listeners, thank you for downloading and for listening in. The book is Analyzing Doctrine Toward a Systematic Theology from Baylor University Press. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.